Good morning. Boy, wasn't the the children's singing encouraging? Yeah. We have come a long ways from the first days of Grace Bible Church when it was two kids. Uh, for the first four years, it seems like. <laughs> uh, God is uh, very gracious to us, and he has blessed us with a lot of full quivers and thankful for his grace in our lives. Uh, the title of the message today is Privileged Humility. Privileged Humility. We're tracking our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and I had planned to take a break today and preach a Christmas message, but as I was spending time in this next passage in Matthew ahead of time a couple of weeks ago, and I recognized something that makes this passage fit perfectly for this time of the year, too, so uh, we're just going to keep going. Uh, tonight we will have a uh, specific a message, a Christmas, and then again on Christmas Eve. Ken's going to teach tonight on 12 days that couldn't stop Christmas. And then uh, on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the original Christmas hymns. So you need to come out to those. I think you'll be encouraged. Uh, but for us this morning, uh, our passage is a little bit more subtle and how it may re- reference uh, the Christmas story. We'll see it as we go along. Uh, You might say, well, it's nowhere in there. We'll talk about it as we go along, though. But it is definitely in here, and it has the same heart of the Christmas message in it. So let's just keep going in this incredible revelation of God in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, where we see the glory of Jesus on display. Here's a question for you to think on this morning as we start. Does our association with Christ reveal itself in our daily lives? Does our association with Christ reveal reveal itself in our daily lives? Does our relationship with Jesus show up in our day-to-day lives? That's the question for us to contemplate today as we look at this passage. Who we are in Christ should be evidenced by how we live in the world and love the world. Our identity should produce sacrificial love and selfless humility, as we will see in our passage. Today we're going to see the privilege we have in Christ calls us to love and humility. Love and humility. Our passage breaks down into two sections, very simply, the privilege of identity in Christ in verses 24 to 27, and then the humility of Christ's own in verses 1 to 4. Jesus, once again, returns to a primary city where he ministered previously, Capernaum. Capernaum was where Peter lived. Most likely his house was there. His mother-in-law most likely lived in the house with him. Remember, Jesus had healed his mother-in-law. Jesus most likely lived in this town for much of his three and a half years of ministry. Did he have a house? We're not positive. Did he live with Peter? We're not positive. But we know he was in this area a lot. We see Jesus addresses a tax issue through Peter, then starts another major discourse in our passage today. We transition from one chapter to the next, and you understand that the chapters were not there, the verse numbers were not there. When Matthew first wrote it, it just flows right into one 
the next thing. So we'll see how this fits together as we go along. This is the fourth, when we get into chapter 18 especially, this is the fourth large discourse recorded in Matthew's gospel. This discourse is much like the other ones. It gives instructions to his disciples on how they are to live in a fallen world in light of his coming kingdom. How are we supposed to live in light of the future glory to come? Jesus has began to tell his little faith disciples, his weak faith disciples, his little faith disciples of his coming rejection, his death and his resurrection. They believe in him, but they were weak in faith. They, their faith would waver, and they believed, but they doubted. They also had a small view of Jesus and his primary coming at his first advent. They were looking for the glory. They were looking for the restoration of Israel, but they didn't fully grasp that there must be suffering before glory. They did not get this concept that suffering had to happen first, at the first advent. They didn't understand that there would be a time where there would be a lot of Gentiles that would come in. They wanted to, and as we'll see, even after the resurrection and the ascension, they want to just sit in Jerusalem and wait for that time to come. But ultimately, there had to be suffering first and then glory to come. So, let's start with our passage and look at our first scene. It's the privilege of identity in Christ. Again, let's look at it in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, that is, Peter said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect sums of or poll tax? From their sons or from others or strangers? When Peter said, from strangers or others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that you, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up and let you, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Wow, what a passage. Really interesting, right? It makes for an amazing fishing experience for Peter, doesn't it? This passage can be a little confusing as we walk down through it. And if we don't take it very carefully and slowly and step by step, walk down and think through it. So put on your thinking cap and we're going to slowly work through it. Jesus and the disciples returned again to this predominantly Jewish community of Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Peter was obviously well known in the area. Uh, the Jewish people were taxed here uh, for the maintenance of the temple in Jerusalem. The second temple that had been built and then renovated by Herod the Great. And now the Jewish leadership, along with the Roman government, required each man to pay a two drachma tax to maintain it. So, in other words, the government was working with the leadership of the Jewish people to 
make this religious facility look nice. And in order for that to happen, they had to, draw, they had to tax their people. Two drachmas were approximately two days' salary. It was collected from all able-bodied men. The tax collector appeared to be relatively respectful in his question to Peter. The Jewish rabbis often didn't even have to pay this tax. So there was a little bit of confusion. Is Peter, a, is Jesus a rabbi or not? Is he a, a sanctioned priest or not? Is he one of the Levitical rabbis? The Jewish man here, and obviously the tax collector, asked Peter, and he asked indirectly Jesus through Peter. Instead of going directly to Jesus and asking him, he goes, I'm going to go to Peter and ask about Jesus. And then Peter answers with a short and direct answer. Yes. Yes. The implication is what? Yes, he pays it. Yes, Jesus pays his poll tax. Yes, Jesus gives the tax for the temple. How did Peter know Jesus paid it? Well, maybe Jesus had paid it before, but it's interesting. Why would he then go into this discussion inside and discuss this? Was Peter speaking before he thought again? Maybe. Was he moving before Jesus wanted him to move? Was he speaking out of hand? Peter never did that, right? That was sarcasm. Jesus does appear to make sure that Peter understands when he comes into the house. As soon as Peter walks into the house, notice it says, Jesus addressed Peter first. So as soon as Peter walked in the house, after he's paid this tax, or said that he paid this tax, he didn't pay it. He said that Jesus pays it. He said, yes, he pays it. As soon as he walks into the house, he does what? Peter, 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 come here. <laughs> Let's talk. Right? The question Jesus asked Peter sought to recalibrate Peter's thinking on their responsibility in paying taxes. Jesus was willing to pay the tax, but he was by no means obligated to pay the tax. And that's a very important point for us to think on. In fact, his disciples were not obligated to pay the temple tax either. Really? Jesus asked Peter, look at the question, look at the passage. What do you think, Peter? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? This word stranger should be, you could translate it others. Just others, not strangers as in the word that's used in other passages in the New Testament, strangers and aliens, but others. Because the contrast is between the royal children and everybody else. The royal children, the king's children, and everybody else. But Jesus appears to move out to a general explanation of the complicated issue of God's children paying taxes in the world's economy. He sets the context with this question. Do the kings of the earth collect taxes from their royal sons or from others? In other words... Does royalty have privilege over the common people? That's ultimately what he's getting at. Does royalty have privilege over the common people? The answer, 
the royalty, royal children were not required to pay taxes. Every other person was required to pay this tax. But the sons of the kings were not required to pay taxes. Why was Jesus asking this question? He was attempting to point to his privilege and his followers' privilege. Peter answered correctly. The others are obligated to pay it, not the sons of the king. So, Jesus then turns the question and answers to the issue Peter was confronted with over the poll tax. Then the sons are exempt. Okay, so what's he getting at? Let's, let's see if we can walk through this. The royal kings were not making their sons pay for this poll tax, correct? Because obviously royalty doesn't have to pay taxes, right? Everybody else does. And then Jesus turns it around on the head and says, Therefore, the sons are exempt. The sons, their sons are exempt. Wait, wait, wait. Then the sons are exempt. Whose sons are exempt? The royalties or the royalties? He's switching gears here. He's switching. He's switching. He's using it as an illustration. The way the world sets it up in this area has it right to a degree. Has it right to a degree. The royalty doesn't have to pay for taxes, right? But who is the ultimate royalty that's in their midst? King Jesus. King Jesus the Christ. And all of the sons that are associated with King Jesus are what? Exempt. They're exempt. Remember, Peter had just heard at the transfiguration what? From the Father. He had just heard these words. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Who's the son? Jesus is the son. He's now applying it to himself. This would be fresh in Peter's mind. So Jesus is the son. And he was exempt from temple tax. And his disciples were also the sons of the father. uh, The heavenly father in a sense. Why? Because as Jesus had told them in the previous teachings. Jesus, he had called God their heavenly father. Matter of fact, remember pray. Our father who art in heaven. So he's in pointing to the disciples being what? Sons. And he says in 1338 that the believers are known as sons of the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom? Who are all the believers? They're sons of the kingdom. They're sons of King Jesus, the king. They're associated with the king, that is. In Christ, they would be adopted children of God. We know this from New Testament, right? Romans. So Jesus says, in effect, to Peter, we are not obligated to pay this tax. The son doesn't pay taxes, and the sons of the kingdom of heaven aren't obligated to pay the temple tax. Okay, so everybody in the room says, Hallelujah, we don't have to pay any taxes anymore. Make sure that the recording keeps going. Can you imagine how bad I could get in trouble with that little statement? 
But notice Jesus says, this privileged position doesn't mean they shouldn't pay the tax. The privileged position doesn't mean that they shouldn't pay the tax. He says, however, so that you do not offend them, go to the sea and throw it a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. This is really a shocking statement. First, it shows Jesus loved even those he was not required to obey. He wasn't required to do this by any stretch of the imagination. But don't be a scandal for the unbelieving world is basically what he says. Don't be a scandal for the unbelieving world. Just give them the tax. But even more shocking... Even more shocking, secondly, he tells Peter how he will provide for them. (laughs) This is cool. This is great. He says, go fishing and get a shekel and pay the tax. Now, shekels don't usually come in fish mouths. Do you understand what that was? That was four days salary. Four days salary or what? Two sets of two drachma to pay for him both. The shekel would cover that. The shekel was there. It would be in the fish. Now, we don't have the fishing story, but I believe he went fishing. I think he listened to him and went and got it and caught the fish. And guess what? There was a shekel in his mouth. A shekel would be about the size of a quarter. It was a shekel in a fish's mouth. This is stunning, isn't it? You say, what's so stunning about a shekel in a fish's mouth? Oh, beloved, think through what he said to do. Go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Do you understand how absolutely impossible that is to happen? It is truly stunning, isn't it? Has anybody ever caught a fish with a shekel in it? Even a quarter in it. I've never caught any fish with any money in it. Not once. He goes fishing. And it's not just he gets a bunch of fish and one of them will have a quarter in it, a shekel in it. It's the first one. What does this show? He is completely sovereign over everything that's happening on the planet. He's completely sovereign. So sovereign that the next fish you catch on a hook is going to have a shekel in it. How long has the fish had the shekel in it? I have no idea. But it's there and it's going to get on his hook. And he's going to be able to pay the tax. Oh, this should be encouraging to all of you. It's encouraging to me. If God, our Lord Jesus, is in that sovereign control over a fish and a shekel, and where it is, I think he can handle our lives. What do you think? He's in complete control of every single event that's happening in your life all the time. Everything. He's royalty. He's the son. He had fish, a fish, reserved for Peter for, with four days' salary in the mouth. 
This is Jesus, Lord. He grants us the privilege of being his adopted children. He grants us the privilege of being royal heirs with him. (laughs) He then requires us to love people that mistreat us and give us obligations that we shouldn't have and often think are insane. But then you know what he does? He provides everything we need in order to take care of it. That's our Lord. That's our Lord. Again, he calls, he, he calls us his children, and then he requires us to love the world, and then he provides the grace in order for us to love the world. That's good news. We are children of the king. We are not required to submit to the often confusing requirements of the world. But by the grace of God, Jesus provides exactly what we need to love the world. That's good news. Jesus was instructing Peter on truths he got and then taught others. Look, friends. This world and its various rules and regulations and governances often seem insane to us. Would everybody not agree with that? But this is not our home. We must know our identity in Christ is above this world and all that's going on in this world. So we live as strangers in this world, but knowing we're adopted sons of Christ, of God... And therefore, we love the world. And we don't stumble over things that don't matter. This teaching of Jesus sounds so familiar to Peter's own words. Do you think Peter got it? I think he got it. How do I know he got it? Look over at 1 Peter chapter 2 real quick. We'll review. It's a good one for us to think on. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are God's chosen people. Wow, what a great truth. We are a royal priesthood. Wow. We are identified as God's own. But why does he do it? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter tells you, tells them, the readers, how does that look lived out? How does that look lived out? Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Do you understand that's the application of verse 9? That's practical implications. What's it look like? Beloved, we are free. We're a royal priesthood. This is wild. We are royalty. 
We're rightly associated with Christ. We're chosen people, elect of God. Wow, great truth, right? But we use our freedom as bond slaves of God. What? We're slaves of God. So if a human institution asks us for something, you can have it. Human institution tells me, hey, bow down. No, I'm going to bow down to God alone. Well, you're going to get on your knees. And if you don't, I'm going to lop your head off. Okay, take my head. I've got to submit to King Jesus. I'm not going to worship you. However, if they ask us to do something that what? Is not opposed to that, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to stumble over that. Because I'm a, a free man. And I'm serving God. Jesus was saying virtually the same thing in Matthew 17. This is like other aspects of living for Christ, right? It took faith, didn't it? Now, I want you to think for a second, though. The good news is is that he provides all we need anyway to take care of these things. That's what we get in that lesson. And here's even more profound. I want you to think for a second. What was the tax? What was the tax? It was for what? The temple. The temple. What was the temple for? To worship God. The temple was to worship God. Who was he? God. So here he is. He's paying to maintain the temple that was to worship him. This is profound. What is this? This is profound humility. This is profound love. Profound love. They should have been paying it to worship him. And they should have been giving homage to him and saying, come to the temple, sit. It's yours. But instead, he wrapped himself in flesh and put himself under the law and paid taxes on a temple that was supposed to worship him. But it was being defiled and not honoring God. Was Jesus required to give anything? Not a dime at that time, not a widow's mite. By identity, he was free. But his character moved him to love them. His love caused him to serve and provide so as not to be a scandal for the wrong things. Do you hear that? Not to be a scandal for the wrong things so that they won't stumble. So they, they won't be tripped up over this. There was a hill to die on for Jesus, but it was Calvary, not paying taxes. 
Do you get it? I think all too often we fight for our rights on things that really don't matter. They don't matter. We need to be willing to lay down our lives as Jesus did for us. But I think often, way too often, we are fighting for our rights. We're fighting for our rights. What we need to do is realize who we are in Christ and be content with that. So first we saw the identity of Christ and it results in love and it's what it should cause is love, right? Second, we see the humility of Christ's own. Look in chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child and to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You just don't know how profound these truths are. This is like shocking stuff right here. The beginning of this discourse is extremely important to understand. The disciples asked in Matthew's account, it says he, they asked Jesus who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We know from the other four or the other three gospels or two of the other gospels that 12, the 12 were literally arguing over which was the greatest before they got to the house, before they got there. If we read our passage without that context, we might not see the severity of their question, how wretched their question really is. But it's really insidious. I would be, it would be like uh, 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 us asking our parents, who's, our, who's the number one child? Who's your favorite? You don't do that. Right? We all understand none of us should be like Jacob. Correct? We should not show favoritism to one. And they shouldn't everybody in the room know, oh, that's the favorite one. That's horrible, isn't it? It would be like asking the parents that. Beloved, the question, though, exposes their hearts and it exposes our hearts. And I want you to get this. It's this desire that is in us from birth to be number one. <laughs> it's in, this is tricky, isn't it? In our culture, in our society, because what are we always competing to be? The best, the greatest. I mean, almost everything in our society screams, I've got to be the greatest. What was the line? I think Muhammad Ali even said it, right? Something about the greatest of all time, I'm the greatest. I am the greatest boxer of all time, I'm the greatest, right? No offense to LeBron James, but do you understand what he has on his back tattooed? The anointed one. Or is it chosen? I think it's anointed or chosen. It's one of the two. It's like, oh, no. 
And again, it's, I'm not picking on him because they're my heart. That's my heart. It's your heart. We're no different. We are the disciples. The disciples are us. It's who we are. It's pride. It's pride. Okay, here comes confession time. You know, you know, one of the hardest lines I walk with my children, the hardest one, this is the hardest line for a parent to walk. Kids should respect their parents. Amen? All parents say? Amen, yeah. And yet, somehow, I think I deserve respect all the time. I'm worthy of it. Do you see that balance? That somehow I'm worthy of honor? I'm worthy of one thing. Hell. That's what I'm worthy of. How do you tell your kids that? That's what the Bible says. We're no different, are we? Have you ever disciplined out of anger? Because you got your pride hurt? Man, this is going to silence us, isn't it? Evaluate our hearts a little bit more. We're no different than the disciples. Look what they were arguing. Luke 9 says, 9.46 on the way. An argument started among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. Can you imagine this conversation? Just imagine it for just a second. I know I'm the greatest. I've seen things you haven't seen. What did he tell them not to talk about? Transfiguration, right? I bet it was eating Peter, James, and John alive. It would have been me. I just saw the glory of Christ and Moses and Elijah. I think I'm closer. Why is it that James and John later on, after this discussion, after this rebuke, they come to him with their mother and have her speak to Jesus and say, Hey! Come tell my sons that they can sit on the right and left of you in, in glory in the kingdom. This is our hearts, beloved. This is our hearts. Mark 9.33 states, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. He already knew that they were already arguing about this. What were you discussing on the way? (laughs) So he asked them a question, but look what happens. But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. So you can see how this, does this contradict? They don't contradict, beloved. It fits perfect. It's a perfect scene. Why? They're walking along, they're arguing. I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Can you imagine that conversation? They get there and Jesus says, hey, what are you all talking about? Ooh, that was kind of stupid of us discussing that. That was kind of prideful. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this. 
Then finally, somebody gets up the courage and they get up the courage and say, Okay, so Jesus. Matthew 18. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Did they want it? Did they really want the answer? I think they did. But then Jesus answers them in the total opposite way of what they were expecting. Total opposite. Friends, if we're seeking to be the greatest, we're probably headed towards being the least, is ultimately what we find out. However, Jesus graciously answered their question. Now, I want you to think about this. Parent, if you heard your kids in the other room arguing about who loves them the most, who's the greatest, you heard your kids arguing about that? You heard that? You hear them in the other room. And then you confront them about that, and they say, nothing. And then finally they say, so who is the greatest in the house? I don't know about you, but my tendency would probably have been, you prideful kids, get over yourself. What are you doing? It's not all about you. Sadly, that would have probably been my response if I heard it. Just being honest. But Jesus is so gentle and gracious and merciful and kind in the way he responds. And shocking at the same time. Look, instead, Jesus called a child to himself and set them him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus started, starts with a visual, visual illustration. He's in Peter's house. Some have speculated it's one of Peter's own children, which would be interesting, wouldn't it? So he brings one of the kids up. One of the young children. He calls the child up to him. I contemplated doing this as having one of the kids come up and just to get the, the full effect. But then I thought, well, our kids might not be as willing to go. <laughs> but Jesus did it. And it happened. And immediately. Now, for context, in our Western culture, we value kids, children, more than people of Jesus' day. Except... Or as long as they make it out of the womb. As, as long as they make it out of the womb. That would be the one caveat. As a whole, though, we actually make children out to be wiser than adults, don't we? In our culture, in our society, they, they, who's the spokesman for the, the wacky green stuff? She's, what, 14 or 13? or How old is she? 16. Oh, she's 16. She's the spokesman for the world on whether or not we're creating climate chaos or burning the planet up. I'm not, uh, not trying to be political, but this is what we do. But Jesus wasn't talking about the wisdom of children here. He was not talking about the child's intellectual or moral capacity even. It wasn't that they're morally better. He was talking about one feature of children that is consistent and has always been consistent throughout cultures. 
Children can be humble and dependent upon adult parents. They can. We know this, don't we? I'll never forget, three years ago at about this time, Christmas Day, little Samuel, I met him for the first time and within ten minutes he was in my arms hugging me, laughing, kissing me. It was beautiful. Three and a half year old boy on the other side of the planet meets somebody and he automatically, automatically was in my arms. It's that humble embrace that automatically happens. It's beautiful, isn't it? Children can be humble and dependent upon their adult parents. We saw that as we made our children come up here and sing, and they all did it, and they, yeah, and they gave their whole voices, didn't they? Some translations have here, though, you must be converted. It says it in, in, in the NASB. You are to be converted as, and be like this, become like this child. Here, however, I don't think it's converted. I don't think the word converted fits. I think it means, it's better translated turn, turning, or repentance. You should turn and become like this child, you. Now again, obviously, when does turning and becoming like a child start? Hint, conversion. That's the first time. That's that moment when you say what? I need you. I'm dependent upon you. I humbly come to you. Listen closely, beloved. If you're here and you've never heard this message, that you have to have a point in your life where you've done that. You have to have a point in your life where you said, I've sinned against God and I'm desperate situation and I need you. And I need help. Help me. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever you say. I'll come to you. That's a heart that what? Regenerate. It's born again. It's a heart that says, I'm desperately in need of you and I'm dependent upon you, God. If you haven't had that moment, you need to do that moment. You need to repent and turn to Christ and trust in Him. Humility isn't something, though, that we arrive at perfectly when we're converted. <laughs> right? We, we turn continuously, don't we, beloved? And it's very important that you understand that the disciples, I believe, were already converted. So what did they need to do? Turn again and become like child, uh, like his child. Why? Because they were arguing over who's the greatest. Now, our kids, by the age of six, do that now. They're arguing over who's the greatest. But as a whole, they are humble, right? Especially when they're small. And Jesus was speaking of the twelve here. Eleven of them were obviously converted. They just needed to grow in their awareness of the Lord and themselves. Again, humility in perfection is found where? In glory. There will be no pride in heaven. Hallelujah. Right? Can't wait for that day. We have to turn from pride and become like a child every single day. We start this process when we're converted, but it's a way of life for the believer. In fact, if turning to God and becoming like a child is not our ongoing life path, then we will not enter the kingdom of heaven, is what Jesus says. If your life path is not to turn and humbly say, 
I'm here. I need you. If that's not you, then you're not converted and you're headed for hell. That's a fact. If you're trying to conquer this world on your own and think that you're the greatest, you're in trouble. As one commentator states, adults like to assert themselves and to rely on their own strength and wisdom. The attitude is impossible for those who wish to enter the kingdom. Do you hear me? This attitude of asserting ourselves and relying upon our own strength and wisdom. You can't do that, beloved. So how many of you did that last week? Hopefully everybody you're at least not that you're, you do it and you want to do it, but it's because who you are, right? You're still battling the old man, right? How many of you failed at being like a child last week? I did. You want to know the most amazing truth in all the Bible? And here we come to the end, and this is the most important thing. this is what Jesus did do you understand every command that Jesus calls them to do he accomplishes where's the Christmas story in this message you ready he became a child that's God That's why we celebrate Christmas in the first place. God became a man. That's stunning. That's that's beyond our comprehension. That's humility from the Creator. I have a hard time putting others above myself. I have a hard time being like a child. But God became a man. This is humility. Condescension. <laughs> and we have a hard time being humble amounts ourselves. We'll close with this. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. This is my Christmas verse for the week, for the year. It fits. Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 5. So as you contemplate and meditate and celebrate the Christmas story this year, think on these words. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Is being humble like a child an impossible task? Yeah, it is. 
in our flesh. But Christ Jesus did it in the flesh. And he did what we couldn't do. So we can now, because we have life in him, have the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. We can follow him. And we can humbly serve him because we know he did it. Remember this, beloved. Remember this as you try to get your children to honor you and respect you. Remember this. What motivates you to honor and respect authorities you don't agree with? What makes you do that? One thing, the gospel. Otherwise, I would say no. But Christ Jesus came into the world to die to pay for my sin. Became a man so that I would not have to face judgment. And was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We worship him, don't we? That's why we want to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious message of the gospel. The good news that Christ Jesus came into the world wrapped himself in flesh, was put in Mary's womb, was raised by sinner parents, redeemed parents, but sinner parents, lived a perfect life, never sinned, hung out with brothers that were sinners, was followed by disciples that were sinners, They denied him, they rejected him, his own people rejected him, and yet he was resolved to finish what we couldn't do. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done. We praise you for the example that you have given us. You've paid for our sin, and now you call us to follow you. And by your grace that you provide in our lives, we now commit again to turn and trust in you and obey you and become like children. All to honor you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand.